Amen. Take your copies of God's Word and open them with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 16. And in a moment, we're going to begin reading there in verse 1. Exodus chapter 16, starting in that first verse. In the summer of 1993, I was getting ready for my sophomore year of college. And I realize I'm dating myself right now. But I had a problem. I didn't know where I was going to live. I couldn't afford to live on campus. All of my money was tied up in books and tuition. And honestly, I didn't know what I was going to do or even if I'd be able to return. And I began to pray about this tremendous need in my life. Well, during that time that I was praying, I was invited by my home church in Oklahoma to be a chaperone for their youth camp at Falls Creek, which was 800 miles away. I went with the youth group. While there, I met a woman from another church. We struck up a conversation, and she said, So, um, what college do you attend? And I said, I'm a student at Samford University. It's in Birmingham, Alabama. She said, Oh, I know about Samford. My mom lives right next to the Samford campus. She said, In fact, my mom is a retired IMB missionary. And one of the ways she can still serve the Lord, she converted her basement into an apartment for ministerial students so that some future pastor or some future missionary would have a place to live while they were preparing for the ministry. And then she said, you know, come to think about it, she's actually looking for someone right now. You go to Sanford. Do you happen to know of any ministerial students at Sanford University who are looking for a place to live? <laughs> and I think I said something along the lines of, ma'am, I might just know of someone. Did I mention that this conversation took place 800 miles away? What are the odds? God was teaching me a very important lesson. God was teaching me that He will provide. There is a situation that you will find yourself in at some point in life. There will be a need, a critical need, which you cannot meet. No matter how much money you have, no matter what your resources may be, rich, poor, somewhere in between, there will be some kind of need in your life, and in that moment, you will have to decide how you're going to respond and whether or not you're going to trust God to meet it. Now, some of you are there right now. It may be a financial need, it might be a physical need, it might be a spiritual need, but you don't see Anyway, for that need to be met, God has to do it. Well, in our passage this morning, God was teaching Israel this lesson as well. We saw last week at the end of chapter 15, the Bible says God tested Israel. God tested Israel by leading them into the desert where they ran out of water. Now, what did the people do? They complained against Moses. Unfortunately, they failed that test. And what happens when you fail a test? You get to take it again. So when we come to chapter 16, God puts Israel in a similar situation. 
Only this time, they don't need water. This time, they need food. And as we read the story, I want you to notice that when there is that unmet need in your life and you are waiting upon the Lord, God is inviting you to do certain things. And there are three things in particular that I want you to notice in this story. And then we're going to follow that up with two implications which come from the Gospels. But first of all, I want you to notice in that time, God is inviting you to trust His provision. He's inviting you to trust His provision. Look at verse 1. And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. By the way, that sounds bad. It's really not. That is a transliteration. It doesn't mean sin in the way that we think of sin. Okay? The wilderness of sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they departed from the land of Egypt. It's the 15th day of the second month, so it has been about six weeks. Six weeks since God parted the Red Sea and he saved Israel from Pharaoh's army. Six weeks into their journey and already their food supply is starting to run out. But no problem, right? I mean, the same God who provided water for them in the wilderness of Shur will certainly provide food for them in the wilderness of sin. Well, look at verse 2. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Ah, the good old days. I remember the good old days when all the pots were full of meat and all of our stomachs were full of bread. Man, those were good times. Someone said, they were remembering what they should have forgotten and they were forgetting what they should have remembered. They're thinking back to the good old days. No mention of Pharaoh's burden upon them. No mention of the sting of the whip upon their backs. Now, we have to be very, very careful because it is easy for us, I think especially in churches, but it is very easy for us to look back and romanticize the past. It's real easy for us to look back and think about the past and talk about the past as if it was better than it really was. Well, once again, the people complained. And notice this. This time it says in verse 2, the whole congregation of Israel complained. This time it's not just a few people because you always have a few people. This time, man, it is everybody. And think about their complaint. Their complaint was both cruel and dishonest. It was very cruel. Moses, Aaron, you brought us out here for the purpose of killing us in the desert. What a mean thing to say. What a terrible thing to say. What had Moses done? All Moses had done was do what God told him and go where God led him. 
Not only was it cruel, but it was very dishonest what they said. How do we know that? We know that because the Bible says when Israel left Egypt, they brought many flocks with them. We get to chapter 17, and once again, they're complaining about the lack of water for their flocks. So we know in chapter 16, they still have their flocks. They could have had milk. They could have made cheese. They could have eaten meat. Psalm 78, which we don't have time to to turn there, but it has a lot to say about this particular story. But verse 18 says, listen to this, and they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. The food of their fancy. In other words, they may be hungry, but they're not starving. They're just stubborn. They don't lack food. They don't like the menu. That's the problem. And so Moses responded to their complaints. Notice the second half of verse 8. For the Lord hears your complaints, which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. As we saw last Sunday, when we complain about our circumstances, we're actually complaining about the God who led us into those circumstances. When you complain about your work, you're actually complaining about the God who gave you a job. When you complain about your parents, you're actually complaining about the God who gave you a mom and a dad. When you complain about what you have or what you don't have, you're really complaining about God's provision. There was an interesting story many years ago, probably 40 years ago, a man by the name of Dennis Waitley from Chicago, Illinois, was rushing, trying to catch his flight from Chicago to Los Angeles. He ran as hard as he could through the airport, and he arrived at the gate right after they closed the door. And so he begged them, would you please open the door? The plane's right there, hasn't left, hasn't moved an inch. I can still see it. They would not do it. And in that moment, Dennis Waitley did what a lot of people would do. He said, fine, I want to file a complaint. They handed him a complaint card. He sat down and started to fill it out. He wanted everybody to know how angry he was that they would not let him board that plane. And while he was still filling out the card, he heard the announcement that that flight, flight 191 from Chicago to Los Angeles, had crashed immediately after takeoff. There were no survivors. When Mr. Waitley heard that announcement, he did not turn in the complaint card. He didn't even ask for a refund for his flight. But he took that card, he took it home, and he framed it and he hung it on his wall. And years later, he was interviewed, and he said that from that point forward, any time he was ever tempted to complain about anything, he would look at that card hanging on his wall and remember that he should have died. Ladies and gentlemen... Christian brothers, Christian sisters, we should look back at where we were. We should look back at who we once were apart from Christ and realize that without Him, we should have been and would have been dead physically and spiritually. Speaking of Israel's complaining, 
Psalm 78, once again, it refers to Israel's complaining as rebellion against God. Now, we think of complaining as being such a small thing, such an innocent thing, it's not a big deal. God calls it rebellion, and that is very serious. Four times in this story, in verses 7, 8, 9, and 12, the Bible says, the Lord hears your complaints. Every time we complain, we better remember, God hears. God is listening. And maybe some of us this morning need to repent of our many complaints. Maybe some of us here this morning need to really ask ourselves, we need to ask God what our complaining says about the condition of our hearts. Because I've noticed something. I've noticed that when you're complaining, you're probably not praying. Complaining and praying, it's like oil and water. It never really goes together. When you, you see one, you, you normally don't see the other. If you're complaining, you're probably not praying. And if you're complaining, you are almost certainly not trusting. And so when you're in that moment and there's that unmet need and you're waiting on the Lord and you don't know how he's going to do it, in that moment, God is inviting you to trust his provision. Not to complain, but to trust. Well, there's something else that God's inviting you to do that we see in this story. God is inviting you to see his glory. He's inviting you in that moment to see his glory. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Now, Lord willing, I'll talk more about that part of the story in a couple weeks when we get to the second half of chapter 16. But it is amazing to me that this is how God responded to their complaining. All of their murmuring, all of their complaining. What does God do? God says, I'm going to bless them. Now, anybody else would have said, okay, you want to complain? I'll give you something to complain about. Maybe you heard your mom or dad say that once or twice along the way. Anyone else would have said that, but not God. Now, yes, eventually God will chastise them for their complaining. But not this time. This time God says, I'm going to make it rain bread from heaven. I love that statement. You know, God can make it rain bread just as easily, easily as he can make it rain rain. To God, one is the same as the other. But why does God respond this way? Because he's gracious because he's good, because he's generous, because he's kind. But there is another reason. Look at verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Also, Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the, in the evening and in the morning 
bread to the full. Now, we know that after all that God has done for Israel at this point, he doesn't have to prove himself to them again. But God says, I'm going to bless you so that you will know that I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. God said in verse 8, I'm going to give you bread to the full, and God intentionally used that same word that they used earlier to describe how full their stomachs were in Egypt. And the result of this is going to be, according to verse 7, you will see the glory of the Lord. God's glory, when we talk about His glory, it refers to the display of His power, the manifestation of His character. God's glory refers to His reputation. And every time God provided for Israel, every time He intervened or fought for Israel, what happened? God's reputation among the nations grew. Everything God did in Israel's history, He did when He did it, in the way that he did it, for his own glory. And everything God does in our lives as well is so that we would know and so that everyone would know how glorious God is, so that everyone would know that he's good, he's generous, he's kind, he's great. God loves to do in our lives what only he can do so that only God gets the glory. One of the most inspiring autobiographies I've ever read, some of you have read it as well, is the autobiography of George Mueller. Now, George Mueller was a famous preacher in England in the late 19th century, but the reason why he was famous, it was not because uh, he pastored such a great church or because he preached such great sermons. What made him famous was the many ways in which God provided for his needs and how George Mueller would document God's provision and God's answers to his prayers over and over and over again. And one of the things that George Mueller did was he opened several orphanages and one day in one of those orphanages, uh, he was informed that they had run out of food and they wanted to know what he intended to do about it. George Mueller, in his autobiography, says that he gathered the children together around the tables just like they did every other morning, that as he always did, he led them in prayer. They thanked God for the food that wasn't yet on the tables and asked God to bless it to nourish their bodies. He said amen, and about that time, there was a knock on the door. It was the local baker who said, Mr. Mueller, God woke me up last night. I couldn't go back to sleep. I felt in my heart a need to start baking that the children here were going to need bread. And he brought the bread out and he set it on the tables. And wouldn't you know it, about the time he was finished, there was another knock at the door. This time it was a milkman. He said, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Excuse me, but my cart broke right out here in front of your house. By the time I get this wheel fixed, all this milk is going to have spoiled. Is there any chance that the children inside could drink it? And once again, God provided. Now, folks, the same God who provided for George Mueller is the God who provides for you and who provides for me. 
And the reason why he provides for us is so we will see his glory, how faithful, how generous he really is. There is a point in all of this that I think sometimes we miss. It says in verse 10 that once again Israel saw the glory of the Lord in the cloud. That same cloud that God used to lead them all of this time. A pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. They saw God's glory in the cloud. But before they saw God's glory in the cloud in verse 10, God said in verse 7, I want you to see my glory in the bread. And here's what I think we often miss. So many times we think of God's glory, but only in terms of the big things. We think of God's glory in terms of the plagues and the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea. And yes, God will at times do that, and He will display His glory in great and mighty ways. But we forget that God also wants us to see His glory and acknowledge His glory in the small things as well. Not only the big blessings, but what we think of as the little blessings, even something as simple as bread. And so in that moment, when you are waiting upon the Lord, God is inviting you to see His glory. Well, there's one more lesson that I want you to see in this story. God is also inviting you to experience His sufficiency. He's inviting you to experience His sufficiency. Look at verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quail came up at evening and covered the camp. Let me pause right there. God provided for them in two ways. He provided for them immediate provision, and then there was ongoing provision. There was immediate provision. That evening, God provided quail. Now, quail was considered a delicacy, and um, I'll even say, if you've ever had a Colombian hot dog, you know it still is. Don't knock it until you try it, okay? But God said he was going to provide quail. One thing I learned about quail is that quail will fly until they are absolutely exhausted, and they'll get so tired to land on the ground that many times you can just walk over and pick them up with your hands. They won't even fly away. So it's not really surprising for us when we read this, but don't think that this is just something totally natural that's happening. Notice God sent flocks of quail who all got tired at the same time and all landed at the same place exactly when God said they would, and it was enough to feed millions of people. There's no natural explanation for that. That was a miracle. And it wasn't the only miracle. Look at verse 13 once again. And in the morning, the dew lay all around the camp. Verse 14. And when the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, 
what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now, I will be honest. There have been a few times where I cooked a meal at home and my wife or my kids said, um, what is it? And normally, that's a bad thing, right? This time, the people of Israel asked the question, what is it? Not because it was bad, but because God was doing something new, something God had never done before. They literally called it manna because that's what the word means. What is it? Now, they didn't know what it was, but verse 31 says it tasted like honey wafers, which tells me it must have been delicious. But God provided this bread for his people for 40 years. This wasn't all they ate, but it was always available for them. And look at verse 16. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. God commanded them to gather according to each one's need, and God made sure that he provided according to each one's need. Every day there was an omer. You say, well, what is that? Well, that was some kind of a dry measurement. We think it was about four liters, perhaps. The problem is every time you read about an omer, it is described as being like other ancient measurements that we also have to guess about. But here's the point. The point is an omer was enough for one person per day. And those who needed more got more. Those who needed less had enough. They could share within their family. And they always found out that at the end of the day, what God provided was sufficient. By the way, I would like to point out that the Apostle Paul actually quoted verse 18 in his second letter to the Corinthians, in which he said that our job as a church is to give. He said God loves a cheerful giver. Our job is to bless and take care of others so that what was said about Israel in verse 18 could also be said about the church today. So that we would learn what they learned. That when God provides, it's always, always sufficient. Now that's true when it comes to the physical needs in our lives. But let me tell you, that is true when it comes to every kind of need. That is especially true when it comes to our spiritual needs. And Jesus had a lot to say about this particular story and there's no way, of course, I could preach this message to you this morning without talking to you about what Jesus said about this story. When we get to the Gospels, there are at least two applications, two lessons here, which we should remember and apply to our lives. According to Jesus, this manna points us to a greater hunger. More than 1,400 years after God provided manna in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted. He was tested in another wilderness. The Bible says he fasted 40 days and he was hungry. And you know what happened. The devil came along to tempt him and said, Oh, Jesus, you're the son of God. You're so hungry. 
Why don't you use your divine power and take these stones and turn them into bread? You remember what Jesus said? It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. Do you realize that when Jesus quoted that verse, he was actually quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he was actually quoting Moses' commentary about this miracle. Later on, years later, Moses spoke to the people, and he talked to them about this story in Exodus chapter 16. And Moses said, God put you in that wilderness, and God tested you, and God gave you manna so that you would learn that man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, there is more to life than what you put in your mouth. Jesus took that verse about this miracle and he quoted it in his moment of temptation when he was being tempted to put his personal needs above obedience to the Father. And so, according to Moses and according to Jesus, this story is meant to remind us of more important things. It's to remind us of an even greater hunger. By the way, everyone you meet will have this hunger in their heart. People hunger for acceptance. They hunger for peace. They hunger for approval. They hunger for meaning and purpose in life. There's this spiritual hunger, and all of the bread in the world will not fill it. Now, according to Jesus, this story about the manna is meant to point us to a greater hunger. It is also meant to point us to the one who can satisfy it. In John chapter 6, we read another story that you remember when Jesus fed the 5,000. But did you remember what happened next how that miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 resulted in a very long conversation about this particular miracle, the miracle of the manna. Now, I don't have time to read the whole passage, but I want you to listen to what Jesus said in John 6, 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes. By the way, he's not saying you shouldn't work. He's talking about what you prioritize. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Jesus said, I've got food that results in everlasting life. There's no donut that will cause you to live forever. It may shorten your life, but it sure won't give you eternal life. Clearly, Jesus is not talking about ordinary food. He's got to be talking about something else. Now, when the people heard Jesus talk about this food that he's going to give them that will result in eternal life, do you remember what they did? They immediately went to this story in Exodus chapter 16. In fact, they began to quote the scriptures to Jesus. Some of them knew their Bible. They knew the story but they didn't know the point. And so they said, okay, you're going to give us this food that results in eternal life, just like Moses in the wilderness, right? You're going to do what he did. 
You're going to give us this manna that we're going to go out and literally we're going to pick it up and eat it. Is that what you're going to do? And here's how Jesus responded in verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Do you understand what Jesus was doing here? Jesus drew a straight line from the manna to the cross. He said that manna that God provided for Israel, it was a picture of another kind of bread, the body of Jesus, which he gave freely when he died on the cross for your sin and for my sin. And because he did that, because he died and rose again, therefore he could say, I am the bread of life. And whoever eats the bread that I give will live forever. Israel didn't have to work for that manna in the wilderness. They just had to receive it. And likewise, we don't work for this bread. We don't earn this bread. We don't do anything to deserve this bread. We simply receive it by placing our faith in Christ and confessing Him as Lord of our lives. My friend, there is a greater hunger in your life. There is that hunger for forgiveness. There is that hunger for salvation. There's that hunger for for eternal life. There is that hunger to know, to personally know, the God who created you. And Jesus is the one who can satisfy it. Would you join me as we pray? Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you provide. And many are those times in our lives when there's a need and we don't know how you're going to do it. But you do it anyway. And you teach us to trust you. You show us your glory. You do it this way so that we can see how powerful you are and how generous and how kind you are. And when you provide, Lord, it's always enough. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would help us not to complain. Help us to identify if and when we've had a complaining heart. That we would see it for the rebellion that it is. That we would confess it and repent of it this morning. That you'd forgive us. Instead of complaining, that we would simply trust you, whatever the need may be. Help us all, Lord, to take what we've heard this morning and apply it to our lives. And I know there are so many different kinds of needs that are represented amongst those who are in this room and those who are watching online. But God, you are the God who can meet every single one. And God, we thank you that you sent Jesus to meet 
the greatest need in our lives, to satisfy the greatest hunger that we have, that hunger for you to know you personally. We thank you that you sent Jesus, that though he'd never sinned, he died for our sin. He took our punishment for what we have done. He died and rose again, and therefore can offer us that living bread so that whoever eats would live forever. And God, there could be some here today who need to take that step, who need to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord of all, that only he can meet that need. There are probably some, they've been looking for so many different things, so many different ways to try to satisfy that need in their lives, but nothing else works. And God, how I pray that this would be that day that they, they come to you, that they call upon the name of Jesus as Savior and Lord of their lives. So God, have your way. Knock on the door of every single heart and show us, God, what you would have us to do in response to what we've read and what we've learned today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.